By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. What are the sanctions on Russia and are they hurting its economy? Reads a BBC headline. Two years on from Putin's attempt to take Ukraine beyond the illegally annexed Crimea, there have been dozens of sanctions packages created, implemented and enforced in an attempt to slow down and stop Russia's war effort. What are those sanctions? Are they working? And how are they being enforced? We cover these questions in today's conversation with Andrea Visky. Andrea is an affiliated expert with CRDF Global, the Director of Strategic Trade Research Institute, and Editor-in-Chief of Strategic Trade Review Journal. Hi, Andrea. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. Are you still in Budapest? I think when we we planned this podcast, that's where you were, but I know you you travel a lot. Yes, I am for at least a few more days. Very good. Beautiful city. Um, We're here to talk about sanctions, and we have done sanctions quite a bit on this podcast, episodes 6 to 9 and 25, and a bonus episode uh, if anyone is interested in going back through the archive. And on those, we've talked about ownership and control, enforcement actions, the volume of work that's been created since Putin invaded Ukraine. But I mean, just to bring it right back, what, what definition would you offer if someone said, what are sanctions? Uh, sure. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on the podcast. Yeah, I'm happy to kick it off with this general theme. So in general, when we think of sanctions, we think of punishments or a way to get a certain person or organization to change their behavior. And in the context of Russia, of course, we're talking about a variety of measures that countries have undertaken to punish Putin and those closest to him, as well as those that are helping to undertake the conflict in Ukraine and the invasion of Ukraine and try to punish them for their actions and to create a cost for them of continuing to do so. Also, in addition to that, the aim is to cripple Russia's war machine and to maximize influence on Putin to convince him to end the war. Also, sanctions help to demonstrate to the world that a certain behavior is is not approved and that a certain country or group of countries stands firm in disagreeing with the actions of another country. And in the case of Russia, you don't have sanctions at the United Nations level, but rather you have specific countries that have decided to undertake sanctions programs against Russia uh, for the invasion of Ukraine. And it's not at the UN level because Russia is part of the UN, I presume. Exactly. So that makes implementing sanctions somewhat more complicated. The United Nations has sanctions programs on countries like North Korea, for example. And in that case, all United Nations member states are obligated to implement those sanctions programs. But in the case of Russia, because Russia sits on the Security Council, it won't obviously pass sanctions against itself. And therefore, countries have to decide whether they will take unilateral or regional measures against Russia. Good. And you talked about obviously the intent of sanctions in this case against Russia is always the same. 
Um, it's to punish, it's to deter, it's to try to cripple the war effort, it's some combination of those. But there are different types of sanctions, I believe. So like, could you maybe talk through what the main categories are and, and you know, why they might be useful? Of course. And we also have to cap that by saying that the kinds of measures, especially in the context of Russia, has been expanding quite rapidly. And we see that over time with the each new sanctions package that's been imposed by countries that have sanctions against Russia. But in general, sanctions measures prevent transactions from taking place with individuals and entities that are designated. And beyond that, they can go as far as issuing travel bans, they can restrict sale of certain uh, commodities, they can create barriers of activity on the nationals of the sanctioned country, and they can extend to financial sanctions, which I'm sure we're going to talk about in the podcast as well. So it's really kind of any activity that can be used to try to deter or punish the the country for its activities. Again, you talked about sort of, I mean, a travel ban is one example. Is that literally always just on people or could it be people plus those that are associated with them? Yes, of course. How does that typically play out as one example? It can be, for example, heads of state. It can be people that are designated but play an especially important role. They can be banned from entering a country and then also some of their family members or associates can be banned as well. Okay. And if we think about so we did a one-year anniversary episode, episode 25, as I mentioned, for this podcast, but where we said, look, there was the invasion. Well, there was the Crimea invasion in 2014. There was then the countrywide invasion in February 2022. And then we sort of did a one-year on, and I think at that point there'd been nine or 10 packages from the EU. There'd been obviously many packages from the US. There'd been this unprecedented coordination between individual countries, as you said, because the UN was not available as a sort of a governance structure. But what's changed since February 2023, so the, the one-year anniversary and you know, this, the, the second year um, anniversary? What, what's happened in the last 12 months? Sure, so quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and I would be happy to provide some updates, not just in terms of US and uh, sanctions packages and EU restrictive measures, but also there's been activity from the UK, from Canada, and from numerous countries in Asia as well that have again, unilaterally imposed sanctions on Russia. In the U.S., very recently been a new executive order that subjects foreign financial institutions to secondary sanctions risks when they conduct or facilitate certain Russia-related transactions, even unwittingly. And since that executive order has been issued, officials from the Treasury Department have been meeting with banks in Hong Kong and other countries and jurisdictions to alert them of this new expansion of uh, U.S. sanctions and and specifically jurisdiction in this particular area. The U.S. has continued to add individuals and entities to its entity list um, and to designate them as well. And there's been a number of new designations that have been tied to uh, networks that have been global in nature and that have been helping to procure electronics and other equipment with military applications to Russian end users. 
And also the U.S. has expanded the sectors that fall under sanctions. So, for example, metals and mining. And in the EU, uh, there's been a lot of changes in the last year, in addition to, again, uh, adding more individuals and entities to the list of designations and also expanding the sectors that are involved. For example, there's been EU as well as other country coordinated efforts to clamp down on Russia's trade in diamonds. The EU has really focused on third countries and the role that third countries play in helping Russia circumvent sanctions. So, if, for example, in one of the latest packages, the EU mentioned the No Russia Clause, and that means that EU exporters are contractually obliged to prohibit re-export to Russia uh, and re-exportation for use in Russia of particularly sensitive goods and technologies. Also, the EU has created this anti-circumvention tool, which allows the EU to restrict the sale or supply, transfer or export of specific goods and technology to third countries whose jurisdiction is considered to be continued and particularly at a high risk of circumvention. So the EU has specified that they are talking to a lot of these countries that are typically named as countries that, that Russia is relying on to circumvent sanctions and that they will only use this anti-circumvention tool if they exhaust all other measures. But this is pretty new because while the EU doesn't impose secondary sanctions, this is pretty close in terms of trying to persuade or influence third countries uh, from dealing with Russia. And then also the EU has expanded its transit ban. And transit means that the goods can't pass over or through Russia, even if they are going to an other country to prevent so-called goods falling off the car or something like that, right? Out the so, back of a lorry, as they say. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And that has been extended to all battlefield goods. And, well, maybe we'll talk about it later, but the EU is also already discussing a new package of sanctions to mark the two-year anniversary, so around the end of February, and those negotiations are taking place now. And then I also just want to add another development from my point of view is really, really important and interesting as well, that countries are looking at not just the goods, the physical goods that are entering Russia and the way to cut the flow of those physical goods, but also technology, because Russia has been trying to acquire sensitive technology for some of its advanced conventional weapons programs or weapons of mass destruction programs. And so countries like Canada, for example, have created systems or, or legislation that cuts off funding of sensitive technology research where that could be seen as creating a risk for, say, Canadian national security. So there's a list that they've published of Russian research organizations that Canadian researchers should steer clear of. And that's kind of another way to look at the different kinds of sanctions or legislative measures that are important in order to cut off Russia's access to contribute to its war machine. Okay, so there's a lot there. There's, yeah. there's more, more volume of names, right? You designate more people um, across the board. There's secondary sanctions, which I'll, I'll come back to in a second. There's lots of education to allies or, or even if they're not allies to neutral countries about what, what the US and others want them to do there's going after the networks whether they be trade networks or networks of people 
there's goods that are being sort of sanctioned that can no longer be be dealt with uh, with Russia. The anti-circumvention rule, which, as you said, is a last resort. There's the anti-transit rule, so that people don't accidentally leave some of their cargo in in the country. Um, and then there is the restriction of technology, trading, joint research, funding, etc., to try and try and stop any advancements that are, yeah, Russian scientists who maybe with the best of intentions could be taken advantage of perhaps and that's being being looked at i think that's everything i was trying to make notes as we went uh so apologies if i have missed something hope listeners have got better ears than i do well i think that the difficulty in keeping track of all these developments is exactly what uh compliance officers might be struggling with as we speak yeah yeah absolutely and for those that maybe aren't in the the job itself so some of these words might not be every day for them what do we mean when we say secondary sanctions so secondary sanctions are quite uh, particular to the united states and they allow the us to apply extraterritorial jurisdiction in certain cases where the items are using us origin technology or components so specifically in the case of Russia, we're talking about two areas, the foreign direct product rule, but also the U.S. imposing its own um, sanctions and designating organizations or individuals that are helping Russia evade sanctions. Okay, so it's it's not going after the Russia as the target itself or the people within it, high power people in it. It's anyone who is assisting them. So it's kind of before we used to say I mean, we've always maintained a database of connections to sanctioned uh, persons or entities but this is almost doing it directly and they say actually we're just going to take those names put them on the government list rather than research databases yes and in the case to tie this back to what we began talking about with how russia sanctions aren't at the united nations level the more that the u.s can convince or apply pressure to other companies, individuals, and jurisdictions to comply and to align with their sanctions, the more possibility that they will be successful. And so that's where this tool of secondary sanctions and using extraterritorial jurisdiction is actually key uh, in one way to the success of, of these sanctions. Yeah, makes sense. And with all of these, obviously, the war is ongoing therefore there will continue to be more more pressure applied so when i say why were these changes made i guess what i actually mean to ask is what why add these things specifically compared to the packages that had already been put in place like you mentioned the anti-circumvention rule might be a last resort as maybe one example but all the things that have happened this year is there a, a change in what we're trying to do with the sanctions program versus what we did the year before Yes, definitely. As opposed to the year before, I think that it's been a learning process and also a realization that it's kind of becoming a game of whack-a-mole. So Russia has adapted its ability to import the goods and specifically the goods that it needs for its military program. And because it can't import them directly from the producers, especially of these high technology goods, it's been importing them from other countries that have been working as intermediaries, um, not the countries themselves, but their jurisdiction has been used by distributors, intermediaries, and all of these different kinds of entities within 
a larger procurement network in order to facilitate Russia acquiring these goods. And so the new sanctions are packages are largely a realization that there needs to be pressure also on these jurisdictions to do something and to try to get them to either crack down on the networks within their territory or to start designating some of those actors in those countries that have been working to help Russia procure the goods. Makes sense. And yeah, thank you for, for that. If we take a, a sort of step back and we think about the different parts of sort of sanctions coming into being and then what they do, could you maybe explain the process by how new sanctions are actually created? I mean, start with the US, we can talk about the EU maybe as well, but uh, yeah, before anything comes in and which type it is, like, what does a government actually have to go through to get something in place? Uh, sure. I mean, it's a great question because we always just hear about the designations and the new packages when they come out in the news, but not that much about A, how they're created and B, how they're enforced and implemented. And it's really different for each jurisdiction. For example, um, in the EU, you have restrictive measures and they are obligatory for all member states to implement. And they are created by the Council of the European Union, and they're created by consensus. Whereas in the US, you have the Office of Economic Sanctions Policy and Implementation that's within the State Department, and they develop and implement foreign policy related sanctions. And so it really just depends. But what's really key is that there's a lot of interagency information sharing that takes place in order to develop new sanctions packages. And that also, just like when it comes to export controls, there's a public-private dialogue that, that usually takes place as well in an impact assessment just to kind of look at, you know, how will this, how will these sanctions actually impact these areas of the economy, these these sectors, and what are the ramifications of that. And that really involves not just that interagency dialogue, but also reaching out or understanding the the private sector as well. Okay. So there's that analysis of how will this impact us? I assume also there's been a, you know, probably even before they were thinking about it, if you're in intelligence, you're trying to understand how each country works. There's probably a whole load of analysis that is already pre-existing of what things could we do when a a government might be war gaming, you know, behind the scenes of what what actions they'd take. And then will it normally come down to you said in the EU that you need to get consensus across the member states to vote anything through. But in the US, most powerful sanctioning entity or country in the world, like I'm just curious to sort of who takes that responsibility on and then how do they then measure like has this worked for us or was that a bad call and you know, I'm gonna change it. As you say, they've there's been a process of learning from the start of the the war beyond Crimea and then into now where we're going, okay, what actually works, what actually disrupts the war effort rather than just being something we can put in a headline. So yeah, I wonder how those people are getting on <laughs> with their... All of these agencies and especially OFAC, they have researchers that are and analysts that are looking at uh, all kinds of data from trade data and, you know, their intelligence data and whatever they can kind of analyze and get their hands on. And that certainly works into the new packages, but it's also a challenge of resources because each time that there is a new sanctions package that's passed and more obligations, then it 
it requires more resources to be able to conduct that analysis to see if they're working to see how Russia might be circumventing. And one of the main uh, challenges to implementation is having the resources necessary for agencies like OFAC and, and others to be able to actually conduct that work and appropriately implement and administer the sanctions. Well, let's go deeper on implementation specifically. How are sanctions implemented at the sort of issuing level and then, but also on those that are on the receiving end, right? Because as you said, there's the private sector, when you issue this sanction, they have to adapt and the people that listen to this podcast, they have to adapt their works affected. So yeah, maybe you could talk to us a little bit about how a sanction is typically implemented in a, in a good program. There has to be some kind of outreach and notice to the actors that have to comply with sanctions. So that's in an ideal world. You have that kind of um, notice and communication with the private sector so that they are aware of exactly what they need to comply with. And, and part of that is issuing FAQs, being very specific about the details of different policies and uh, different new sanctions measures. And then in addition to that, you need to have a lot of expertise and, and, and as I keep mentioning, resources to be able to uh, administer the sanctions and to implement them. And that, again, involves a lot of interagency coordination and cooperation in order to allow for enforcement to take place. Uh, because if you just pass a bunch of measures, but you don't enforce them, then they're not worth the paper that they're wrote on. Really, they're not going to make an effect. And also companies aren't going to necessarily take them seriously. So they might take the risk of actually violating the sanctions measures. And so in the US, you have the um, Disruptive Technology Strike Force and the Justice Department's task force called Kleptocapture, and they work together to actually enforce the, the sanctions that are passed. And there's been a lot of cases, very successful cases, where individuals have been brought to justice for circumventing sanctions and for, for violating sanctions. The U.S. is kind of standalone in terms of the weight of its punishments yeah, um, and also the activity of its enforcement. There's just a lot more cases and we don't even know what the actual amount of cases would be if they caught every single one. But then it also differs from other jurisdictions where maybe there aren't as many resources and it's more difficult for enforcement authorities to actually implement the sanctions and to find uh, violations and and bring them to justice. I know the US, its culture is sometimes uh, accused of being too litigious, but I imagine in this case, that's quite an advantage. There's a lot, lot of lawyers, a lot of competition to be good at, at that profession. And, and to uh, part of that is the prosecution. Um, so as you said, there's resources to actually go and make sure these things are being done. I suppose it might not even be willing violations. Sometimes people just haven't invested enough in their program. So it's, yeah, it's not deliberate, but it, you deliberately didn't do enough in terms of your effort, in terms of the money you spent, in terms of the people you brought in to run the program, et cetera. So it's, you know, different flavors of it. We'll come back to enforcement. Um, I just wanted to ask in terms of the implementation, the, the stuff that has been implemented over the last year or couple of years now, what impact has what's been implemented already had on Russia and its war efforts? I assume it's, you know, it's not going to be 100% effective nor totally ineffective, but like to what degree are we seeing success? 
So the answer to the question isn't black or white because there's some areas where we have seen successes and then other areas that have been less successful. So there's been little impact to to Russia's gross domestic product. Um, The economy continued to shrink in 2023. There's been a lot of assets that have been frozen and people that have been sanctioned and entities that have been sanctioned. So there has been a lot of impact, in fact, to Russia. And another example is that you import restrictions on Russian coal. Um, they've affected about a quarter of Russian coal exports. And so in, in those specific sectors, there's certainly been an impact. And like you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, for a lot of the sectoral sanctions, it's really a matter of time and, and you know, waiting to see the effect over a couple of years. For example, now we see that diamond industry is being sanctioned and what effect that's going to have. It comes down to time, but it also comes down to the strength of, of enforcement and implementation there. But another example of where they have been successful seems to be in airlines and airplanes and that sector because um, Russia isn't able to easily obtain spare parts for its commercial air- airplanes as well. Okay. And so there's been a couple of really scary stories where uh, there's been emergency landings or or significant issues with those airplanes that's starting to really make an appearance in terms of how often those airlines are affected in Russia. So those are some of the successes. On the other hand, however, in terms of, say, oil, Russia has kind of filled the gap. Russia has become the biggest supplier of oil in 2023. And that's certainly an issue. And also, Russia has been trying to counter all of the different measures as we've been talking about. So it's been trying to obtain the goods that it can't obtain from countries that has imposed sanctions on it from others. And one of the, these notable cases is uh, unfortunately from the DPRK. And just a couple of days ago, the UK submitted to the DPRK panel of experts, which is a body that assists the United Nations Sanctions uh, Resolution uh, Committee in administering and implementing or reporting to the Security Council on the implementation of DPRK sanctions. And the UK provided photos of the DPRK um, shipping goods to Russia so that there could be an investigation at the UN level of that. And um, there's been reports that DPRK has been supplying ballistic missiles and um, artillery shells. And then, of course, you also have those intermediary companies that have been assisting Russia in circumventing sanctions, especially for um, smaller kinds of goods that it needs for its weapons, like microelectronics. Then on the flip side of that, for a lot of the advanced electronics and advanced military goods, Russia still depends on them because of their quality. And so the more that time passes and perhaps we see some of these sanctions working in terms of making it more difficult for those third countries to be part of those procurement networks, the more that perhaps we'll start to see that Russia can't actually keep supplying its military program with those more advanced goods. And I would guess as well, like even if, say, if you manage to shut off one third country, so you find another one or you find a combination of two more, it's more expensive each time, I would guess, because of just added logistics, added time. And then if you're also shrinking the economy, then 
it, it's it's very much a chip away job but you shrink the amount of money and then you make each purchase more so you know maybe in a year's time the money that used to buy 10 missiles or the component parts to make 10 missiles only now makes eight or or something like that so it doesn't shut off the weaponry but it does reduce the amount i, I would guess sort of is how that can can play out so obviously with all of this going on we know that Russia and those that are designated entities and persons are going to be trying to avoid this. They want to get on with what they want to do. But have we seen any changes over the last year in how they tried to avoid sanctions and the, and the programs that have been put in place? Are there, are there new red flags that compliance officers should be aware of? Sure. So, I mean, so a lot of these are not new. So a lot of these circumvention tactics are the same kinds of uh, tactics that you see in illicit procurement cases since a long time. So uh, having strange shipment routes or not providing details on important actors for the that can shed light on the ultimate end use and end users. But in terms of, say, areas like curbs on beneficial ownership, you also have the typical strategies of having family members or friends or associates take over ownership if that individual has been designated. Um, and then you also see more activity in terms of the use of cryptocurrency um, to fund the war effort and to obtain funds. And so you actually, and I missed uh, discussing this in the trends earlier, but this kind of started in 2022 and continued into 2023 of jurisdictions sanctioning individuals that have been involved in using uh, cryptocurrency to help uh, evade sanctions. And then also designating, for example, cryptocurrency mixers and other kinds of cryptocurrency related organizations and activities that Russia has been using. And so some of the tactics are the traditional ones and then some of them are new and still evolving. So there's kind of bad paperwork, which is almost laughable, but I assume very effective if people go, oh, well, I'll do it anyway, despite not having the details. There's networks and, you know, you talked about uh, change in the ownership, I assume, through different shell company layers, um, etc., or obscuring the ownership uh, is, I guess, how we can think about it. And then there's using alternative currency, plus the the third country procurement uh, methods. Would th those be the main categories, you'd say? Yes, I would say that those are the main ones. And the tactics are constantly evolving. And so you'll see that governments are putting out advisories pretty often to update companies on the latest red flags. And I really recommend that everyone keeps track of those advisories and reads those new red flags all the time, um, because they really are based on um, the information that these governments get on the latest things to look out for. And if you don't, then the risk is enforcement, which I said we come back to, and this is where, <laughs> this is where we do. So when we think about, we'll talk about an example in a moment, but in terms of sanctions enforcement, if we talked about how sanctions get created and then how they get implemented and some of the different things we've seen based on the implementation so far, we now talk about how enforcement typically works. I think that would be helpful. And then based on that, what, what do we assume is going to happen over the next 12 months in terms of enforcement? Enforcement 
really, again, depends on resources. So when it comes down to it, um, usually there will be information that's received about an illegal shipment uh, or in some cases, especially with all of the media attention and open source information that is out there, even from news sources, authorities can take action and say, oh, there's this organization that produced a report that named these companies and we're going to look into it and we're going to see what's going on and possibly designate those organizations. And that's been known to happen, actually. Once there's information that's received, then often when it comes down to it, then it's all of these different enforcement authorities that are involved and customs might inspect and seize cargo and um, and then work with investigators to try to build a case, which sounds easier than it is in practice because you need to look through all of the company files and and paperwork in order to actually build a case that you can bring before a judge. And that can take years in some cases. Uh, so I imagine that in some jurisdictions that's being sped along, but traditionally when it comes to uh, export control and sanctions cases and jurisdictions worldwide, it's really not an, an easy process to to build and actually prosecute a case. And um, I mentioned that in the US, the fines and the criminal or civil penalties are, are significant in other jurisdictions. Um, you know, maybe it's a year in prison or something like that. So, um, so that kind of all factors into it as well. I suppose with what you said there, if you've got to go through all the records, we saw a number of fines in the last 12 months, but they were generally of what I would say are, are smaller companies than the traditional large financial services firms. And the fines were significant, doing it wrong, you know, millions of dollars, but they're not the billions of dollars that we might remember from the 2010s and some of the fines that were issued then. But I guess it makes sense, like you're going to enforce the smaller companies first because there's simply less people to speak to. There's less records to look at, I would guess, than the the bigger investigations of the bigger firms, which may, may take longer. Do you agree with that theory? Or, and if so, like, would you say 24, we might see more actions taken because more investigations should finish, even if they started in 2022 or at the start of 2023? I mean, it's, it's an interesting theory. I definitely agree with the second thing that you said, that of course there's going to be more uh, prosecutions and the, the rate is just going to go up. A, because the sanctions measures have been expanded, so there's more possible opportunities to violate them. But then also because the enforcement authorities do have more experience, they're learning as they're going along about how to enforce and how to prosecute these cases. But it's also interesting what you noted that it is in a lot of times smaller companies that are either willingly or some cases like, you know, there are certain cases where they really are purposely trying to export these goods somehow to Russia in order to, you know, fuel their war effort. But then there's other cases where especially small and medium-sized companies just don't have the resources to ensure that they can be compliant because it takes a lot of time and understanding in order to apply the proper procedures to have effective compliance, to have a strong internal compliance program. So um, small and medium-sized companies generally bear that risk of being unwittingly involved because of that. But that does not limit their liability. Well, no, we talked to uh, Vic Maculitis in the first episode of 2024, 
on this podcast around you know if you can't if you can't do the business safely you can't do the business and i suppose the the flip of that is like business safely shouldn't do the business but if you don't have someone or a program that lets you know if you can do it safely then you can quickly find yourself in a difficult position where you're you're doing it you think everything's going great you think your growth's the right growth and then it, the rug be pulled out from underneath you as a, a small small to medium-sized business if you haven't invested enough uh time in the compliance process or, or as you say found the resources or decided not to pursue a line of business because you don't have the compliance compliance power to you know to check yourself as well there's a whole whole other can of worms that we can open up there in terms of you know who do you need and when but we'll save that for another day. So if we think about the enforcement actions that happened in 2023 in the last year, can you sort of explain what was put in place, what was violated and and how the enforcement happened? I'm, I'm thinking there might be some lessons there for, for our listeners. Sure. Um, I can focus on one case that really highlights the use of intermediaries and, and third countries in facilitating violations of sanctions. And so... This case involved some individuals that were based in Brooklyn in New York, and they had received orders from Russian end users for their defense and technology sectors. So all of these kinds of equipment had military end use, and essentially they were able to obtain the goods um, using uh, aliases and then lie of course lie about their end use and ultimate end user um so they they would just buy these components from u.s manufacturers or distributors and then they would arrange for the items to be sent not directly to russia but uh to different uh jurisdictions like um, turkey hong kong india china and the UAE. Um, and then from there, they were rerouted to Russia. And in addition, they opened numerous bank accounts and conducted uh, financial transactions in order to support their activities. And so they were ultimately found and they were brought to justice. You know, I think that this case really highlights A, that it was a small company, and B, they bought those goods from larger US companies. They just bought them, and you know, in Brooklyn, um, and then they would, and then they would export them to these other mm. jurisdictions, and then ultimately they would get to Russia. One of the kind of weak points as well is transshipment. I don't know if there's details about this case in terms of how how the transshipment actually took place, um, but often these items are shipped to um, free trade zones. Those are especially vulnerable in in those kinds of typical transshipment countries where they might undergo a little bit less scrutiny in terms of where where they might be uh, transshipped to. And so I think that's kind of another uh, factor that that this case highlights as well. Yeah, and the companies that, that said so the small company is buying the goods, the companies they were buying from, do they also take some liability here because they didn't know their customer well, well enough? Um, you know, did, didn't understand what that customer was then going to do or... or in this particular case was that had they done the due diligence and it was just um it wasn't a system failure it was just a nefarious act so 
Unfortunately, the case files often don't go into that level of detail because it might be confidential. So I would imagine that in this case, they would know exactly the larger manufacturers that these items came from and that they would have some kind of interaction with them and let them know what was going on. I don't know if they can be held liable, though, because ultimately they weren't exporting these goods. They were just yeah, yeah. selling these goods to a domestic company. That kind of comes down to those red flags that those larger companies can look at and say, okay, well, maybe there is something in this request for purchase that is a red flag and that maybe we shouldn't um, go through with it. But I think that especially in that circumstance where it isn't even an export, that's just a very, very difficult thing to, to do. Yeah, it it does drive the point home, though, I've heard people talk about oh you know people perceive themselves to not have risk or not as much risk because they're domestic only but you know what a great case it says well it doesn't really matter like you could still be accidentally supporting war effort like you still need to know your customer you're still supposed to understand like what do they intend to do with the stuff you're selling them particularly if they're dual use goods or something of that nature so that's a really interesting case and just a final question about it do you no, did, did the case notes say like what initially grabbed the interest of investigators? Like how did they know to look at this small company buying stuff out of Brooklyn? Well, again, that's usually confidential information that they don't share. So uh, it's really hard to say whether they got a tip from intelligence, uh, whether there was some kind of, you know, setup to catch them in the act or whether they got a tip from maybe um, one of the provider i mean it's it's just or another country it's yeah. just really really hard to tell and usually it's not made public so unfortunately in this particular case i don't know but generally that's how it happens okay very good well thank you so much for today andrea talking through all the from the basics to some of the stuff that's happened this year to the examples etc just before we go is there any resources that you use yourself or that you would recommend listeners that are trying to stay right on top of everything sanctions should be should be checking out? Well, I'll, I'll offer something a little unconventional because I'm sure that most of your listeners are tapped into all of the tools uh, for screening and resources to kind of go in the weeds on that. Um, there's so many products, tools available now, and also there's a lot of uh, legal resources as well and, and consulting services that are that are helping companies kind of get through and comply with what they need to comply with. But my advice would be that it's really good to try to forecast what's going to happen and to kind of look at the bigger picture. And I know that it's difficult to find the time, but there's a lot of great research organizations that do look at trends, that do look at what are those components that Russia is trying to acquire? How are they used in, in its military? How do they get there? And before the EU passed the restrictive measures with the anti-circumvention measure, one could see that that was sort of coming because they could see from all of those different reports and resources that, well, that's definitely the tactic that Russia is using. They're going to try to depend on these other countries to be able to get what they need. So I would just say that if anyone has time to read those kinds of reports, to read some not academic, but just journal articles or trade magazines or, you know, there's 
World Export Control Review, there's Strategic Trade Review, um, and then there's, of course, all these different organizations that work on research in this field. Definitely try to to read those just to keep up to speed with the bigger picture and the bird's eye view of, of what's taking place. Excellent. Well, we'll get some links from you after the uh, recording, then we'll put those in the show notes. But uh, Andrea, thanks so much again. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Alex. It's been a pleasure. So some success and some learning for the sanctioning countries trying to limit and ultimately stop Putin's war. There is definitely more for those in the private sector to do so we can all ensure compliance with both the letter and spirit of the law and undoubtedly a realisation that for institutions and businesses alike that domestic third parties can still pose a sanctions risk and it's our collective job to know. Thank you for listening and thank you to Andrea for dialing in And as always, thanks to producers Caroline Waters, Lexi Fox-Mills and Mark Rundle. Thanks for listening to this Moody's Talks podcast. To find out more about the topics discussed, please follow the links in the show notes. You can check out other Moody's Talks podcasts by visiting moody's.com slash podcasts.